Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Dan Q. Makalua. The Man Team. Mega Bears Fan. A composite show, archive segments from previous episodes that got cut due to time. Episode 291, Dank You, Akalua, The Me and Team, Majin, and Semperfy 2382. Sipta wants a cultural revolution mechanic. Now, in this case, the cultural revolution mechanic is less cultural revolution, more can we switch leaders and stuff during the game. Be interesting for a number of leaders that change the country a lot. Ability for such leaders is to start a cultural revolution. One-time ability that changes a few things and gives a one-time kick. So before that, you don't get any leader bonuses. So it would be triggered with a button somewhere once you fill certain requirements. Postpone it as long as you like. So you'd be happy if Fraxis would introduce something like that in the future. Basic concept is, say you start as Egypt, and then somewhere along the way, for their specific suggestion, you found a religion and you have three temples. You want to culturally revolutionize Egypt, and therefore you would switch leaders to Akhenaten, and I'm guessing bonuses, and then you get a boost. So once you click the button, all foreign religions are cleared from your cities, and your cities convert to that religion. You get one free apostle of that faith in every holy state that you own, and you get a bonus for converting foreign cities. But your own cities are more vulnerable to being converted by others at the same time. So a new religion has the following beliefs, culture for every city following the religion, holy sites and religious buildings are built faster, minus two amenities in cities without a holy site, great works of art, religious and sculpture, give more tourism and culture. That seems slightly way overpowered, but it's just an example, so we can totally ignore the fact that it's, like, wrong. Well, yeah, when I read that one, especially the <laughs> sentence, you receive one free apostle of that faith in every holy site that you own. Yeah. I did a little, I did like a little, I did a little Spock eyebrow there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a little... Um, yeah. But anyways, the whole point, I think, in this is that you start with, say, one of the bases, and then something happens, like you fulfill some set of requirements, and then, blah, you get switched over. There's plenty of big things that happened. Like, England could be Industrial Revolution, and say you get a bunch of industry plowing up and... uh then you're like, okay, so the old style of government, not as good. We got to switch leaders and bonuses. There's plenty of stuff like, you know, the French Revolution, they put in Russia uh, as well for the communist revolution, or the Arabia, pan Arabism, a switch, stuff like that. So the big thing to me is it's totally interesting concept. I mean, it isn't concept, but. First, you'd have to get alt leaders for every single sev, at least one, if not two. And then, of course, all the leader stuff. You need audio for every one of those leaders. You need all sorts of other stuff for all those leaders. They need mechanics to go with them. 
just changing their name with a minor buff wouldn't be interesting enough. You'd actually need, I'm going to play you differently. This sieve has sufficiently changed to make this more than just like a tiny flag. So say England in the early game plays as is and they're all about culture. And But then at some point you go, bang, we're actually an economic powerhouse. So all our bonuses change away from the arts and back over to the economic side. So you need more buildings, more units, more fun mechanics, etc., etc. And then you'd have to actually try and balance all of that stuff. And then on top of that, you'd have to modify all your base sieves to remove all the stuff that got put in because when Firaxis designed the sieves, they have like, okay, this is the leader, so their main bonus is going to be somewhere about what the leader is like. But then, because it's a sieve that's been around for a while, we got to get bonuses from early and late, and yada, yada, yada. And then you have to start making crap up for some sieves that don't know much about it. And then you have to modify the engine. Mm. I mean, when I read this, and I'm looking at some of the requirements and then the ability that you get my first thought is, rather than having it tied to a specific sieve, just treat it like a supercharged Pantheon. At some point, okay, there's some kind of value that you need to be able to accumulate, and if you're really interested in getting one of these abilities, and if, as suggested by SIPTA, you don't have any leader abilities until this particular point in time, then you'd be rushing for that. Similar to, I'm not really going for a religion, but yes, I would like to get a Pantheon, I would like some kind of boost. So then you would get a choice. Here are all the possible choices that you could get. And part of the reason I'm thinking about that in terms of the abilities that you would get, rather than the requirements, is some of them as suggested, for example, advance to the industrial era, or have two factories like France and Russia specifically, that's going to come after probably what Egypt has to do in terms of that, and the sooner the better, and the snowball effect, number one. Number two. Two, maybe a psychological thing, I understand the idea of, for example, okay, if you're Egypt, you're going to take a hit when you get this. So you're going to get minus two amenities in cities without a holy site, or you're going to get minus one amenity in every city for France. All of these things that have some kind of negative modifier, to me, the negative would be I chose this particular leader ability over somebody else, as opposed to, I get all of this, plus it's been specifically spelled out in black and white, as it were, you also get this negative. I really don't like the idea of adopting something, get gives me an explicit well. negative. I would just take that out and try to not make, for example, <laughs> the abilities for Egypt quite so powerful, rather than having to feel like, okay, I'm going to boost it up really, and then I'm going to take a little bit away. Just... You know, it's, I mean, that's okay, because then you get very vanilla if you don't throw that in. It's okay to put a negative in with a big positive, as long as that negative can't be easily removed, because then you're just left with a big positive. Otherwise, you just get some very, very bland stuff for everybody if you don't reach for the stars. Well, I think the abilities are strong enough right now that I'm not going to feel it's going to be bland if that negative is not in there. The negative just happens to be that I I chose that particular focus. Like, I guess it could be, okay, let's say that I go with this really nice supercharged thing that is currently described for Egypt. Okay, I found a religion. Okay, I've got my three temples. You know, it could be that, okay, I've locked this in. So that, you know, on turn 12, okay, I am going to now be going for founding a religion and having three temples. I want to get a jump start on that. I've chosen my leader ability. I'm not necessarily being able to use it right at that particular point in time, because now I have a few things that I have to order to achieve. But then once I've got that, 
I've got that. So I know my investment in religion. Someone else isn't going to be able to snipe that because I've chosen, no, this is the one that I'm going for. And now that I've gone ahead and I've done that, it's given me some particular boost in reference to this, but it's not so overpowered because someone could say, hey, guess what? That person chose, quote-unquote, the Egypt ability. They're clearly going for religion. Let's go squash them before they have the chance to do that and do something with their religion towards a religious victory. Hmm. Well, that's the thing. I'm not too concerned about that sort of thing because, well, choices are choices. Although, as Drew was pointing out in the chat, this sort of system, he's he pretty sure starts creating false choices, though I don't necessarily agree with that fully. But anyways, he says, these are way too powerful to avoid playing outside of a very specific playstyle for each leader, which is sort of true. Like, if you're not playing the religious game, you wouldn't try and trigger this to get the switch over to the religious version of Egypt. I could actually see if you have enough alt leaders that trigger for the uh, play styles for the various victory conditions, it's not necessarily a bad thing. So say for France. So you've got oldie timey monarchy type France that really loves art and some free religion and stuff. But you have some revolution that wants to shift it to more of a war setting because, well, they did that. And you can get w ways to switch over to Napoleon, who has bonuses towards all that war stuff. I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing as long as there's different uh, ways to make those changes to be able to shove you over. I'd say you'd be able to do it more than once. Yes. Well, if you can only do it once and it's like, oh, look, I started as this person. Well, why didn't you start as the alt leader? Because it has those questions as well. Like, why didn't you start as that other person? But as we've talked about before... The entire concept of the governments and being able to switch types of governments and switch policies, that sort of is the cultural shift in the game. So it's not as big as this is. I like the concept, though it's probably a mod. Some modder, once the the uh, DLL comes out, could probably mod this sort of thing in, where each Civ has a couple different leaders that can go in different directions with the Civ. And then you have your baseline sieve that has enough stuff that you would be okay with playing the baseline sieve without switching to a different style or a different leader. But yeah, no, like say with the U.S., you've got base Washington, whatever, as your leader, and he's good for early game scouting or Monroe. And then at a certain point, you can go, well, we want to be an economic powerhouse or we want to be cultural powerhouse or scientific powerhouse. And there's different leaders that you can pick to make that shift. And then you can do that if you hit trigger conditions. But then you can always shift out to a different leader later. And those times can be spread across the timeline fairly well because, oh, I'm going to go for science. I'm going to be a science leader. Well, those should generally be later, considering the victory condition is also later. Yeah, I, I'm even a little bit more with uh, what Art Morte has said in the thread. It sounds more like something for future Civ games. Eh. Like you said, Matt, in your last sentence, it's a fair amount of work, though. If done well, it could be fun. And, of course, that's ultimately what it comes down to. Can we see ourselves playing a Civ game that's like this? And the answer is yes. So whether it's a mod and or a new Civ game... I also like the idea, because if I didn't like the idea, then I wouldn't be going into all the particulars and trying to say, okay, well, if we modify this, or we make this, you know, like approach this in a different way, I agree there's definitely something here. And even if you don't take all of this, even if the cultural revolution mechanic isn't full stop what has been suggested here, elements of it could certainly be incorporated into Civ Six and or future Civ titles as well. Hmm. But uh, yeah, starting from scratch with this as a part of the core idea would probably be long-term better 
at least if Firaxis was going to do it. Otherwise, I'd say just let the mods do it. I think it would be better if you had started with no bonuses at all, and then as the game developed, you would actually fill your role. Like, you could make those changes in the game based on how the game was going, and, you know, either have a predisposition and be easier to achieve it, if you played a sieve that that would be easier for, like make it easier for, say, the Egyptians to get that religious trait. But depending on your game start, you might be going for a science victory and have not that kind of start. You might have to be spending most of the time, I don't know, fighting Monty. And that's, you know, a whole different issue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, no, that sort of setup could easily be done again probably new sieve version where it's all about the population. So instead of starting as a sieve, you start as a population that has one trait. And then as you expand and say soak in territory or, you know, soak in barbs, they also have traits. And then you merge those traits over time and you soak them in and come out with new traits that uh, arise from the combinations that eventually start building you up towards an actual civilization. And then you can get into, well, okay, now if you make it to this, you become France and France has these bonuses because you've merged all these types of traits and stuff like that. And then, yeah, build up things as you do stuff. Kind of similar to how, hey, you've settled on the coast. So guess what? You're going to get a boost to be able to research sailing because that would be advantageous to you. Except I don't want to research sailing right now because someone's come knocking on my borders. So I need to go get something a little better than a warrior yeah. <laughs> in order to be able to defend myself. Well, not just that, but I mean, the civilizations in general are a product of where they started. You're not going to have, say, Vikings develop being Vikings. They were in the middle of a desert. That's just not going to work that way. Exactly. So yeah, you would have, in that case, if you settle on the coast, well, there's a series of civilizations, or at least enough civ choices that you could settle on the coast and then you have easier access to being one of those, but not necessarily forced into being one of those. Mm, yeah, and why is my mind now kind of going to, okay, when you start the game, you just start the game as civilization unknown. You're just a distinct yeah. pink people, and then based on where you settle, you're building up to a certain point, and now on turn 10, you are now the Egyptians, because you settled on a river. And if you want to tie that to, historically, the civilizations, and you could do that. And you got a pantheon, and you did something else or you've got uh, fertile land in the desert or blah 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 there's ways to get there yes because of where you settled and everything you have a boost to become egypt but you don't have to become egypt it could be nope no not going to be egypt i want to go for this i'm willing to wait five more turns or whatever it happens to be in order to be able to adopt that because i need something that's more military based because i'm going to die before i'm able to spread the wonderful word of my missionaries and apostles Mm mm-hmm You could also, as you advance, when you become, say, Egypt, you only get the ancient and classical era Egypt stuff. And then as you advance, maybe somewhere in the medieval era or Renaissance era, you have a choice of picking a bonus for that section of time. That could be the we flipped over to being something else or we're not necessarily the ancient Egyptians anymore. We've switched to deciding we want to make commerce important or industry important or war important and then you pick a bonus that uh, works from that 
even those bonuses could be part of just a generalized pool that everybody gets to pick from. And then you pick the thing that uh, is most relevant to you. Or at least you have access to certain things that are relevant. Not necessarily you can pick anything. But then if you do things, then you have access to those bonuses. <laughs> and I could just see some Civ saying, hey, so I see you guys are the Egyptians. And um, Egyptians are supposed to be you know, all about that religion. But you know what? I think we do religion better than you. So no, we're going to call ourselves Egyptians. Uh, no, I, I don't think so. Will the real Egypt please stand up? <laughs> Obviously, if somebody chooses I'm Egypt, then whoever was also heading on that line would get that trimmed out from their options. Yes. There's lots of stuff you can do to build up to becoming a Civ. Like, it's like, okay, well, we built these types of shrines. Our shrines are pointy, pointy triangle things because we like triangle things. Other people in the area who also like triangle things, maybe we can soak them in versus those people who like circles. Yeah. Keep points, envoys. Envoys, lots of envoys. Also not mine. <laughs> <laughs> so, Olius started a topic talking about, we called it Much Ado About Envoys. Very funny. He has to say that he loves the Envoy system. It's a much more captivating way of dealing with the city-states and Civ Five's gold is everything approach. This is true. Yeah, now in Civilization Six, gold is just about everything else, except city-states. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it made it more interesting. You can't it's buy Envoys. Yes. <laughs> certainly helped make this show more interesting gave us more to talk about thanks for access thanks 2k i've been meaning to thank you for that for about almost for a year now <laughs> oh my <laughs> anyways one big problem with it though is that the getting the envoys is too unconnected with the rest of the game your civics do unlock some in quests but those are rewarding you for things you were doing anyway that does definitely happen mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like bong, bong. oh what i'm sorry what did i do oh i oh i completed a trade route well I was going to do that anyway, but sure, give me something else for something that I was doing anyway. That's fine. I don't necessarily mind that that's the case, but that does seem to happen more often than not with quests. It's not, I'm not really going out of my way to try to curry that favor with you. You just kind of came along for the ride. <laughs> yeah. So he would like to see more things as a situation that you have to pick between the envoy and something else. You know, you can use this thing, you can get an envoy or you can get something else. So he had a few ideas in here. Oh, one using spies to gain influence with the city states, which we used to have before in Civ Five. It's just be a simple mission that, if a certain amount of time, you have an average possibility of success, you get one envoy from the current suzerain. Actually, oh, so you're stealing an envoy off of somebody else? Yeah. I'm not necessarily against that concept because you're not gaining something from nothing, and. If you get caught, then that suzerain would get a negative against you for stealing yes. their envoy. And then there's a war support one with the city-states at war with a major power. You should get some benefit for going to war on behalf of the city-states. How does this, this? So you declare war on someone that the city-state is at war with, you get plus one envoy. Is that going to be temporary or not? Uh, I'm guessing not. So, huh. I mean, I could see that as being a bonus, yes. Um, so say they don't have a suzerain. And say Germany, because they're a punk like that, specifically declares war on a city-state that does not have a suzerain. So I would say that this is not in the case where the city-state got dragged into a war by the suzerain, Mm. because that would be really stupid. Um, Oh, yeah, that would just... (laughs) Yeah, but say a city-state is at war with somebody because they got declared war on, 
if you say go to the city state screen and press a button going i will defend you and that's how you get into the war against the other person then yeah you should probably get a envoy it was actually also plus two if they didn't currently have a suzerain so that would be even more understandable if it was like you say in germany going up a city state very early or anybody but i would actually say you get nothing if there's a suzerain like no (laughs) because if they have a suzerain then they already have somebody protector a protector yeah yeah at least in theory in theory It also does remind me in Civilization Five where you could pledge to protect a city-state. Yeah. Only this sounds more mm, purposeful. Yeah, more direct. <laughs> I pledge to protect you. Um, hey, are you going to protect us? We got war decked. Eh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that. <laughs> and, and maybe, maybe you don't get the envoy until the war is over. There you go. Yeah. So that Germany has to make peace with the city-state in that specific example for the city-state to give you an envoy. Yeah, because then at that point, is it that you declared war just to get the envoy, or did you declare war to get the envoy and then actually have to do something in order to get that envoy rather than simply declare war? Because declare war is pretty easy. So you said you declared war. Can you send us units? Nah, that's fine. I just wanted an envoy, and that gave me a reason to get an envoy. Thanks. Yeah. Delaying that would be better, because that could be abused. And obviously that envoy has to be specifically placed on that city-state so that it's not just, hey, give me a free envoy that I can go place on some other city-state. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yes, that exactly. would be horrible. That would be even worse. However it works currently to give you one specifically for that city-state, when you do their quest, that's how this works. Yeah. Oh, and the irony of the next one, but anyway, sure. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, gold. Wait a minute. Were we just talking about gold not it being good that gold wasn't a city-state thing? Mm-hmm. Anyway, he says it's a little boring. We could simply have units called diplomats that could be bought with gold, very expensive, and the cost grows very rapidly as you buy more. You can just simply move them to the desired city-state and get an envoy. No. <laughs> yeah. What was this about? Not wanting to buy your way into city-states, even if it has a exponential cost here? Yeah. No. Yeah, no. Not against a unit called a diplomat, necessarily, but not to do this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No. You can also exchange great person points. He says it's a little more out there, but it's another thing he loves in Civ Six. but they're, they're as disconnected from the rest of the game as the envoys. The idea here, you could be able to buy an envoy for a city-state using great person points of the same type, uh, like you use great scientist points for scientific city-state, and the cost would scale with that per era. Nope. No? <laughs> no. Well, let's say you're not going for a culture victory, but you still need culture. Because you need to get through the civic tree. So you build some theater districts. But you don't care about the writers and artists and musicians because you're not going for a culture victory. Now, all of a sudden, you're generating great people points. But there happens to be, you know, four or five cultural city-states on the map. And they have good bonuses that are not towards culture victory. So you just keep spending all your great people points that are being fake generated because you don't want them anyways. And you get a bunch of envoys. No. No more wall of great writers? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and actually, my reaction to that was less about within this mechanic, but the comment that great person points are as disconnected from the rest of the game as envoys. Which is not really true either. Yeah, no, I disagree with that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> They're actually a fair bit more connected because you have to build districts that you're part of the game. And they come out from things you do in the game versus, say, envoys that just come out based on the government and the policy slot. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I can agree that envoys 
aren't as do something to get something. They're definitely much more of a background thing, but uh, great people are far less of a background thing. Yeah, I mean, Envoy is just, okay, by progressing through the game, I'm getting more Envoys because it's a reward for time investment, as it were, because, oh, I've got 10 more Envoy points after five turns because I'm running the policy slot that gave me plus two. And there's nothing else I had to do. Just swap it down. Don't think about it anymore. Ooh, Envoy, where do I want to place it now? Or do I not want to place it now? Yeah. So because of that reason, yes, I like this idea of giving them something else to do. But yeah, this exchanging points, mm, yeah, no. Okay, and the last option, an administrative district, which he says he believes that's a fan favorite, but a new district that would have two mutually exclusive buildings or set of buildings. One set would give extra envoy points while the other would give domestic benefits. No. Well, <laughs> wow, that was quick. Come on. Well, my, and, uh, first off, I'm agreeing with Magin again. What's happening? But <laughs> part of that is, like, the other, so the second set of benefits would give domestic results. Cheaper civilian units, extra range for regional districts, or extra great person points. We have policy cards. And we also have great people points. Yeah. There are great people that do all that. Like, so, <laughs> stuff already exists that does that stuff. Yep. Well, do you want to call it the diplomatic district for the envoy thing? No, because you already you have give... a policy that gives extra envoy points. But you don't want any buildings whatsoever or a building in the city center or something that could give more envoys points? But that's what we have policies for. And it goes into its own policy slot. So it's not like you have to exchange it for like an economic one or something else. Like it's got its own little slot that you put in that extra envoy points and then you leave it alone because all the other diplomatic choices are stupid in comparison. Yeah, and then the exclusive buildings, like one set would give you extra envoy points why can't i just put that in the city center if we're going to have a building that's going to get me to do that what do we need a separate district for yeah the administrative district is the city center center of government okay so the basic concept here is wants to get the envoys more connected with the rest of the game okay we can work with that personally first thing i would fix is you get a new quest as every time you advance an era as long as you finish the previous quest I would like to see the quests have a stack so that every time you cross an era, you get another quest from each of the city-states. And because, Yeah, because sometimes the quest it asks you for is incompletable. Or <laughs> or you got the quest like right before After you, you jumped did to another. It. Yeah, or you're jumping to a new era and it's like, no, I'm going to be in the next era before I can even think about finishing that quest. Oh, gosh, yeah. Yeah, something like, hey, it's a city-state. It's turn four. Let's see the quest. Construct a great admiral. Yeah, no, screw you. Um, <laughs> why? <laughs> Just because I can't, well, even if I wanted to. Do. Tech, get the inspiration for that tech. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if they do come up with that, hey, pick up a great admiral, then you go into the classical era and they come up with another one. That's okay. I would like it to stack so that you have options on all these ones. By the way, you're stuck with that Great Admiral quest. So the city-state that you meet first could give you a quest that you're just never going to finish any time soon. And therefore, they might as well be meet in another free city because you're never going to be able to finish quests for them. <laughs> and the only question that remains is what type of meat are they? Yep. Are they the flamey type because you don't like where their city is? Or are they the tasty kind because you like where the city is? <laughs> Oh, well, flamey could be tasty, as long as it's not too charred. Yeah. Okay, so is there a way of pulling out uh, Envoy system to be far more interesting? Yes. Now, each of the city-states could, say, give you quests that are actually more relevant to their type, rather than just 
you know, random. <laughs> that Science City State saying, hey, build me a holy site district. Like, what? Why don't you ask for a science-based one? Or they could have quests that are like, hey, why don't you build two libraries as you go along? Halfway through the game, build a campus district. I already built all my cities. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'm going to found a crap city. Yeah, yeah. and I'm going to construct yeah, a campus at that point. Just yeah, to get sure. one on board. Yeah, yeah. Like, no. Yeah, no, shut up. Uh, and maybe, I don't know, the envoy points you get from governments require you to do stuff or to be in a government a little longer or something. I don't know. Make it slightly more viable. I'm okay with all the free envoys from Civic Unlocks because, well, that just gets things moving with envoys. Of course, if you're going to add more envoys to the system, then you want to actually spread things out. And as we've talked about in previous episodes, if the base envoy level gives you stuff for your capital, the next level should be based on the uh, buildings rather than uh, flat districts. And then maybe the city-states look at what your empire looks like and says, okay, you already have eight campuses in eight cities. I'm not going to ask you for a campus, but maybe I'll ask you for a university because you'll don't have any universities yet. So maybe they actually ask you for things that are slightly more relevant to advancement. It's not that. Yes, we do not think that we should find a way to incorporate envoys more into what you're doing in the game. No. And certainly, like, the spy suggestion and the war support suggestion, those were very good. Mm -hmm. And then it kind of went downhill. In terms of the specific implementation suggestions, but the intent is good, and yes this would work well and should work well. There are ways to make it better and make it more relevant. Episode 302 with Dan Q, Makalua, and me and team, Mega Bears fan, and Timothy 001. Best City State Suzerain bonus. Start on CFC by Pibs. He didn't list his stuff, but he uh, put a thing up for, for everyone to discuss. Uh, first one was Avian British. He plays very coastal, so he goes Auckland and then Madola always his go tos. He likes Valletta for excess faith. To get new cities up scratch quickly and buy those last levels of walls before you get steel. And it's always nice having Laventa, Granada, or Amog for the unique improvements so you can build in such unimprovable tiles as Tundra, Snow, and Desert. He also likes Buenos Aires, Brussels, Geneva, Kabul, Palnique, Stockholm, and Zanzibar. Okay, on the ability to construct those unique improvements so you can on the unimprovable tiles, see to me those things are best left for certain districts. Like, hey, I need a spot for my entertainment district. Oh, look at this empty tundra. This is fantastic. Oh, definitely. And also that ability, that improvement, you know, like a colossal head, for example. Okay, I'm going to expend a builder charge on that. I'm going to get something, but it's just, oh, especially with the limited charges, it's no, I've got something better to be doing with that. You know, I don't mind necessarily for some city-states that I'm getting the bonus at one or more tiers based on the districts that I have in the city, but... In terms of a suzerain bonus, he actually talks about liking blah, 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 and mentions Zanzibar last. Zanzibar, receive the cinnamon and cloves as luxury resources. They cannot be earned in any other way, and each provides six amenities each. 
wow. So first off, obviously, if you have a large empire, but in some cases, even if you don't have a large empire, hey, I'd like to be Scotland. Hey, look, all my cities are ecstatic. Hey, look at all the additional production and science I'm getting from that. Zanzibar is fantastic. They would be my favorite. One of the things that I think really hurts with the unique um, improvement ones is that they're almost exclusively faith improvements. If, say, Amsterdam had been a city-state and that had given you polders, that would have been awesome. But getting, like, two faith on a tile, whoop-de-doo. But I think it's worthwhile mentioning maybe some of the other ones other than our favorites. And, yeah, I kind of... <sighs> It's a sickness I have, but sorry, not sorry. I kind of made a top 10 list out of this too, even though it really wasn't suggested by that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm doubling down on the top 10s because I was pretty remiss in 2017, so I'm trying to make up for it. You see, you're welcome, even though nobody thanked me. Okay. But before I do that, Jason, what would be your favorite city-state suzerain bonus in Rise and Fall? (laughs) Okay, so I can't agree with Old Carthage because that was hands down the best, I thought. In- <laughs> <laughs> That's um, my, yes, in Rise and Fall. <laughs> yeah, um, I do like the ones that give you the unique luxuries. That's pretty good. And I also really like the one that gives you the benefit of being adjacent to water, even if you're not. That's going to be very map dependent. But like if you start out in like desert or something like that, that's pretty helpful. Are you talking about the ones that give you full housing like you were next to water? Right, yeah. I don't remember which city-state that is. I think it's one of the cultural ones, but I don't remember the name of it. But yeah, it's like basically you don't have to build adjacent to the water to have the six housing or whatever. That would be uh, Mojandaro. Your cities have full housing from water as if they were all next to a river. Yeah, it just gives you a little bit more flexibility with where you can put your cities. Okay, so we'll just kind of go around the table <laughs> as if we actually had a table. We can't afford tables on this show. Have you seen our budget? Ah. <sighs> What I mean, budget? my computer's kind of setting on one. <laughs> um, it's all dependent upon what way I'm going. If I'm going religion, it's going to be Yervan. If I'm going war, it's Kabul. It all depends. And who else, who you find on there as well. Policy units can choose from any possible promotions instead of receiving a random promotion. Kabul, your units receive double experience from battles they initiate. Mmm, Phil. Conquered city, state. <laughs> That's his favorite suzerain bonus, Conquered. <laughs> 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 Mackie. Oh, all of the financial ones, so I have gold to buy all the things. If you're able to get trade routes out there, you can make so much gold. Just like send all the trade routes up to that city state, whether it's there, Bandar Brunei and Amsterdam and other places that we've had all game. And it's just, I love it when there's more than one on a map. All right. So, yes, Amsterdam, your trade routes to foreign cities earn plus one gold for each luxury resource at the destination. Bandar Brunei, your trading posts in foreign cities provide plus one gold to your trade routes passing through or going to the city. I can't remember the other financial bonus, but they're all nice. Muscat plus one amenity in cities with a commercial hub district. So some of these we've already mentioned. We already know what number one is on my top 10 list. Number 10, actually, I have Amsterdam. Number nine, Hattusa, provides one of each strategic resource you have revealed but do not currently own, which can be available sooner than getting that equivalent and even better than uh, Governor Promotions with Magnus. Pelinique, city-state growth is 15% higher in cities with a campus district. Antonivario, your civilization gains plus two culture for each great person it has ever earned. Obviously much better as the game is going on, as with all of these percentage-based ones. Speaking of percentage-based ones, Geneva, your cities earn plus 15% science whenever you are not at war with any civilization. And yes, there will be periods of time that you are not at war with any other civilization. What? Nan Madal, one of the ones that was mentioned in the first reply to the thread. Your districts on or next to the coast tiles provide plus two culture. 
Auckland was also mentioned. Your shallow water tiles work by citizens provide plus one production with an additional plus one production when you reach the industrial era. Kumasi I have at number three, where your trade routes to any city-state provide plus two culture and plus one gold for every specialty district in the origin city. And often trade routes with city-states in general are fantastic because I'm getting that added science by going to a scientific city-state or added culture from a cultural city-state that's an absolute value and it's based on the number of specialty districts that I have in the origin city. So hmm, I wonder what I can reach from my capital and my second city and my third city that have lots and lots and lots of specialty districts. So I'm going to swap Kumasi and Muscat here. I'll make Kumasi second and Muscat third. But I mean, you can always be having more amenities, uh, especially as your civilization is starting to grow. Oh, I can't have any more unique luxuries. Oh, I didn't get that great merchant for that otherwise unique luxury. Someone else has got a hold of Zanzibar. Curse you. I've already maxed out my entertainment districts, and I'm still on a warring rampage, or I'm getting schmucked by somebody else. And then, of course, Zanzibar, number one. Episode 310, Dan Q, Makalua, the main team, Mega Bears fan, and New Earth Relic. Great Wolf had posted a thread just titled Weapons Training, but he had an idea in the game. Weapons training has always been a thing that humans have done so. In the game, if a player research gun power allows him to do the busket man, and he's got that stock of niter. So if you have the sieve near you that's far behind the research, and it would take them a long time, you could be able to trade those weapons. Perhaps you would spend one of your NIDR resources, and now they have the NIDR, so technically they could build the units and build the weapons. I'm pretty sure that Civ Five had the ability to just gift units to other civs. I know they, you could do it too. for city-states. I'm pretty sure you could do it to the other civs as well at some point. That's particularly when I read this, and I read Grey Wolf's last couple of sentences about this would help players who have fallen behind to remain independent. It would also help them gain the upper hand over civs who are behind in technology. It's kind of like listening to a joke and I'm waiting for the punchline. I'm waiting to figure out the person who is giving this other civilization this unit. What are they getting out of it? The kindness of their heart, question mark? What What are they getting? Money? Uh, something? I don't know. You'd have to have something where they, either diplomacy or a function where if you trade it to them and you get gold back or, uh, yeah. What are they getting other than messing with other suits? Or I guess if you're building it a, itself, you know. If you're building a trade empire and you just want to give a bunch of weapons to another civ so it can beat up on someone that you want to conquer, you know, Roxy then you just works. go in and clean up. I could see you doing maybe something like that. Yeah. Why do I have some real-life examples of one civ- one country helping another country attack one country, and then the country that sent those weapons has those weapons turned and used on them afterwards? I, hmm. Yeah, that was an I have a specific example, but this is actually something that's happened multiple times in history, yeah. <laughs> not just the one you're thinking about. <laughs> Repeatedly, this is how the outcome has been. Thanks for the weapons. Now it's your turn. Yeah. So how do you know that you, the AI you give it to isn't going to turn around 20, 30 turns later and just go, oh, hey, thanks for these. Boom. Yeah, this sounds like it would be such a liability that I just can't imagine very many people. Everybody actually using it. using it. Yeah. You could or reasonably should anticipate that if you... Okay, let's say you're Congo. You're giving Rome these weapons. As Congo, you should reasonably expect that Rome is going to turn around and use them on you and to anticipate that. 
But particularly when we're talking about the artificial intelligence, or even just another human player, if it's a cooperative situation, what kind of assurance do you have that they're actually going to use those weapons to attack whomever it is that you gave them the weapons for in the first place? Or what consequence is there if they don't do that? Or how are you going to measure that? It just seems to be like a complete crapshoot that all you're really doing is saying, I'm kind of bored, I'm hitting end turn. You know, if I give these superior weapons to my opponent, then maybe the game will become more interesting because they'll have the chance to attack me and do something. I feel like we're still missing something here. Maybe if it were treated more like a lease rather than giving it to you. So kind of like how um, the city-states, you have the ability to levy their units. Maybe uh-huh. like civs could do that with each other. So I give you a bunch of my muskets and you have them for like 30 turns and you pay either a gold per turn or an upfront cost for that. And then at the end of those turns, I get them back with any experience that you may have accumulated for them. That wouldn't exactly be weapon trading, that would be unit trading, but that seems like that would be a more sensical mechanic in the context of the game. Yay, Condottieri. I was about to ask you what the name of those were. (laughs) Okay, so when I get those units back, let's say again using Congo and Rome as an example, I as Congo get those units back from Rome. When I get them back... If one or more of them is currently in Rome's territory, do they get to remain in Rome's territory? Or are they automatically ejected to wherever there is immediate empty space? Or do they get automatically sent back to where my civilization is? Do I get them back in X number of turns after they travel? What happens upon the return? Uh, I mean, I was just throwing out an idea. So Teleport I wasn't, the units. I wasn't expecting an inquisition. Um, they step no through the bag of holding one. and appear in your capital. Well, I mean, I would probably just follow with the regular game mechanics. Yeah, they'd probably just warp back to your territory, or maybe if you've got open borders, then they stay wherever they are. If the game were designed in such a way where you had units and then you equipped them with weapons, so your tech tree was unlocking weapons instead of new units, then kind of like if you remember how um, civilization colonization worked, where you would put them in the cities and then you could take them out of the cities and like turn it into like a unit or whatever. Like if it were something like that, then I could see maybe, yeah, you send a bunch of guns over to the other civ and then they just put those guns on their units. And that could similarly be a lease program where after 20 or 30 turns or whatever, you get them back. Although guns generally don't gain experience. So I don't know what the selling player would receive in benefit other than just the money for the lease. Hearts of Iron has a mechanic like that, oh. and it makes more sense in the context of that game. But it, yeah, they, they, it's Lend-Lease in that game. And you would mostly do it just because you, you want to make it harder for your, your meaningful opponent to conquer a less meaningful opponent. Say Russia is invading Finland. Maybe you would toss Finland some guns because you are going to be fighting the USSR in the near future. And it's better in Finnish hands than Russian hands. And even if Russia still wins, they will lose more resources in taking it. And it, so if you have a surplus of guns, if you are not actively using those guns for something else right now, right. Yeah, it can often make sense to just toss them the way of an enemy of an enemy. And, and that, that could well be true could be to excellent. some degree in Civ 6, too. Like if somebody is getting invaded, they're relatively small. You could give them like three or four units to just block the enemy advance and right. make it and take like a dozen more turns to conquer them. And that could well be worth. And that could be a very good mechanic for putting checks on the snowballing warmonger civs. Yeah. And then the snowballing warmonger ships will remember this and punish you accordingly, yes. Uh, yeah, so you get those units back and any of the promotions that they may have received, which makes complete sense. And so then now I am Congo again. I gave Rome those units to go and conquer Nubia because Nubia was annoying both of us. Okay, let's say uh, let's say even the units go back to my territory. 
or just outside my territory, whatever. Okay, so it's going to take half a dozen turns or whatever. I'm going to send those units back to the front. You just took these cities, and the infrastructure is still damaged. The terrain is probably still damaged. Most of your army was, in fact, my army. So now I am going to go and take you out. I mean, you could say that, oh, you have to have, you know, X number of turns before you can go around and declare. So if you're going to borrow someone's weapons, you should be aware that when they get returned to you, part of your empire might be a bit on the vulnerable side after you did all of the work once you had the units in terms of deciding when and where and how to attack. I feel like we're getting closer to it being mutually beneficial for both sides to do this, but it just kind of feels like in the end, the civilization that loaned the weapons is going to have the upper hand. That, okay, I either get eliminated by this civ right now, or I get eliminated by this civ later. Maybe if that gives you more time to, again, complete your space race components, I guess you could. But again, it just seems like we're trying to help someone either catch up, as it were, or we're just trying to soften other targets for the greatest player that's already snowballing to snowball even more. Maybe I'm just too harsh on this topic. I don't know. Well, how about this scenario? Say Nubia is rushing somebody in your Congo, and you just give two of your swords to whoever they're rushing. It would be worth considering doing, in my opinion. Yeah, definitely seems like it creates a huge kingmaker problem overall. Well, in that scenario, as Congo, it actually optimizes your win-offs, too. Because the last thing you want is Nubia having two full empires super fast. So, And if you dump your like two of your swords, which resist range pretty fiercely on this guy, he's probably not going to be able to take out Nubia just because he has those. But on the other hand, Nubia is not going to get a free win there. This would also be helpful for maybe stopping the AIs from crushing all the city-states 20 turns into the game. Yeah, that's true. That. You meet that one city-state, you get the free envoys with them, you become their suzerain early in the game, and then the Aztecs or whoever just comes up and conquers them while you give them some units to maybe hold off the Aztecs, so you actually get to keep that suzerain bonus. Although, the way the game is now, it's often beneficial to just predict the city-state gets conquered, then liberate it for those bonuses, or even more cheesy, but often less useful, ironically is to just build a couple scouts and put them around the city so that the Aztecs can only attack from like one place or no places because your scouts are in the way and the Aztecs are not officially at war with you. Yeah. <sighs> Which is... Hey, that, that's like scouts for. Hooray. It's so stupid. And then the AI is at war, so it's less inclined to declare other wars. It can't beat the city-state. <laughs> and then that war also goes on perpetually because the AI keeps thinking that it's stronger than the city-state, so it doesn't want to ever end the war or make peace. Yeah. Even though there's a stalemate. Yeah, that's fantastic. And and the AIs don't recognize that you're doing that either. Using your example there, Phil, of loaning a couple of swordsmen to Rome as Congo to prevent Nubia from taking them, I don't like the idea of you warming me over in any context, but you're kind of warming me over to this idea with this example. (laughs) So... (laughs) Yeah, I'll help you prevent yourself from donating your cities to the AI. There you go. I think the idea in my mind would be that I would be sufficiently far enough away that it would be beneficial for Rome and Nubia to continue fighting each other so one doesn't take advantage over the other. So in other words, yes, Nubia does not take over Rome, now comparable in size now to me as Congo. So if I can give Rome the advantage to survive a little longer until I can get over there and, say, attack the decimated Rome or the very distracted Nubia, then yes, that would be an advantage. 
Otherwise, if I was close enough, I would just probably use my own swordsman, and while Nubia is attacking Rome from one side, I'll just attack them from the other, and then in the hopes that if I can't conquer Nubia at that point, then I've also made inroads to where they are, and then we can set the stage for the next round of conflicts with Rome eliminated after we split their empire with some degree of percentages. Well, sure. You don't want the use case to be the same every time, so it's just something you can do if you think it'll help. I liked gifting nukes in Civ Four, though. That was pretty hilarious. <laughs> Especially because you could get open borders with both sides, put your nukes in the cities of both sides, and gift them to both sides, and then just hit end turn. And both the attacking and defensive armies would just be gone. You were just helping bring about a new world order. Yeah. Or rather, I didn't want either side getting conquered, and they had a lot of units. It would be nice if a third-party AI could recognize that I'm giving things to the second party that's hurting the third party. The Civ War actually had an algorithm for it, because you would just have, like, traded with worst enemies or whatever. Anytime you gave them benefit, there was a modifier for that, that people that didn't like that Civ would have a negative for it. The problem was, it just weighed texts in gold so much more strongly than units, that it was, like, a drop in the bucket. So they would technically react to the nukes being given, but it was just, I gave them, like, ten gold or something, rather than, I gave them the means to completely annihilate their army, which is, uh... More along the lines of how it should be evaluating this. But it it technically had the idea, it just didn't utilize it well. Recorded for episode 298 with Dan Q, Makalua, Canis Albinus, and New Earth Relic. The 2017 listener feedback survey definitely showing a decreasing level of interest. There were only 24 responses, which is a 46% drop from 2016. Should we try to find another way to conduct the survey? Should we not conduct the survey at all? Or my preferred interpretation right now is that everything is so amazing on the show, why would I just send you... (laughs) Let me finish my sentence. Although, I, I, fair enough. <laughs> that the show is already so amazing that you guys are already so awesome. I just couldn't possibly inflate your ego anymore. So, <laughs> but anyway, looking at the download statistics, roughly we can approximate that there's about 1,500 of you listen to each of these episodes. So how can we get more of you to provide feedback a year end and also throughout the entire year? We're always, always open to it. Well, even on most given servers, I think when you've done this before, that's not been a big thing for the actual responses. Because most people, when you give them an option to have additional feedback, unless there's something very specific they want, they won't put anything in. That is true. So we're specifically referring to question 10 for those who are not familiar, which was a not required, but it was the free form answer. Whatever else you want to say, either something based on something that we already asked you or didn't ask you. And actually, one of them was, why can I not leave question on nine unanswered, which was specifically the one about who is your favorite regular co-host. I interpret that as they wanted to choose all of us as their favorite (sighs) co-host. But uh, why you cannot leave that unanswered is we want you to choose somebody. If you had to choose somebody as your favorite regular co-host, it's simply bragging rights. Nothing any more serious than that. There was also the comment, more puns, please. No problem. You sure that wasn't a troll comment? Uh, there actually also was the comment troll troll comment. Here is looking to ten more years, winky face. 
to be clear, as of last year, we were on for actually 11 seasons, so they don't want us to go to season 22, only to season 21. Well, okay, you know, I guess that's fair. <clears throat> going to miss Majin. Keep going strong in 2018. There was also the show should be better next year since grumpy old man Manjin isn't a co-host anymore. <laughs> and of course, there was also the I already missed Dan Jin. <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> uh, Dan's favorite comment of all. <laughs> I kind of embrace that magic, not so much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the one substantive comment was quote, You guys are doing an awesome job. Keep it up. I really like the Senate and theater segments you've done, but I also love the sound of having interviews and especially the Time Machine segment. It would be very interesting and help keep the show fresh, I think. All the best for the season. I will be listening. Unquote. I must say, the port for having the interview uh, segment, which is where we speak with key individuals within the civilization community, it was not something we did in 2017. We're trying to get people from 2K and Firaxis to come back on the show. Scheduling hasn't worked out, unfortunately, for a few years, so we'll keep going on that. But the support for the Time Machine segment, which I thought was interesting, simply because we usually don't get any comments on the Time Machine segment... In terms of the other feedback, something I forgot that I said I was going to stop doing, I just kind of went and did anyway, which was asking about the episode recording choice. I did phrase it differently this year. It was, do you want it to be bi-weekly or do you want it to be weekly, as opposed to including the every other month and every quarter question. So I did simplify the question, but still in the end, and you know what's going to come down between bi-weekly and weekly. And the result was every other week at 83% of the votes. And I think part of that is just being conditioned how often we record the show already. So I will affirm now that I will retire this question in any shape and form. For sure this time. Passion, showing excitement in what is being said on the show. We actually went up a percentage point to 8.3 out of 10. Ooh. Oh. And dialogue, connecting with the show's audience, we went up 3% to a 7.9 out of 10. So yay us. We're doing some things well. No surprise here, for the second year in a row, our listeners, again based on the survey, want us to cover Civilization VI. Civilization VI was the first preference across two of the possible choices for a combined 86%, although I did find it amusing that now 50% would prefer us to talk about Civilization in general next, as opposed to Civilization V. Oh, well, now that six has been out for a while, everybody's calmed down about that. Oh, why don't you talk about five anymore? Because while there's a significant amount of people playing it, there's far more people playing six now. And everybody wants to hear about the strategies on that. But I also think it's more could we talk about with Civilization Five because it's complete and we've exhausted it. Like Civilization Four, like there really hasn't been anything new that I've been made aware of that we haven't talked about before. Yeah, because before five came out with Civ Four, we were starting to repeat ourselves. Yes. And another question I'm actually considering retiring simply because the results really haven't changed. How do you think we should be promoting the show? Once again, fan communities topped the list at 92%. For the second year in a row, Reddit and YouTube were tied at 75%. And before that, third place was always Twitter with YouTube in second and fan communities in first. So that question may be retired now because that's five years in a row of very little movement, very little change, even though the show has changed and what we've talked about has changed. Okay, segments. Favorite segment. And again, we are a strategy show. I'm pleased to report that once again, our specific dedicated strategy segment was not the most popular segment requested. (laughs) That would be a tie between forum talk and news, which, given people are filling out the survey roughly a month after the announcement of the Rise and Fall expansion pack, and then talking about what's included in the expansion pack, I think kind of helped fuel forum talk and news. Just kind of throwing that out there. But still, Senate was in second, 87%. And in third place was... Interview at uh, 67%. The only segment 
to not get at least 50% of the responses was the segment that was specifically named by somebody as wanting to hear more, and that was Time Machine, down at 42%. But everything else had at least 50%, where they wanted us to include it at least once over the course of 12 months. And then, of course, comes to the guest return support and favorite co-host. And in terms of guest return support, Canis, for the last two years, you have been in second. You were second by yourself in 2015, and you tied with QNL for second in 2016. Congratulations on being first now. Yay! The guest that most people want to see return, 62% of respondents said they wanted you amongst anybody else. In second place is Alpha Shard, who was first for the last three years. He was at 57%. And warning you to Mega Bears fan and the Chris D in 52%. Well, for those of you who voted for Mega Bears fan, I'm afraid he is definitely not coming back as a guest, but that's because he's the new fourth regular co-host. Speaking of troll, and only 13% of respondents chose nobody, which was good because the first four years, we actually had a third or more of people responding not wanting any of the guests back so that's definitely an improvement wow in terms of favorite regular co-host congratulations to you mackie you were back in first again with 38 percent of the vote in second place was the absent the me and team at 25 percent so mackie this was your second time in first place yeah I suspect some of this is because grumpy old man quit. (laughs) Where he's like, screw that guy. Vote for Mackie. (laughs) In ascribing points to either a first place or a second placement or a third place, you are unsurprisingly Mackie, the favoritest of all. If I look at the number of times you were either first or second, you are ahead and Phil and I are tied for second. Wow. In that consideration. Just you're more consistent in being either first or second (laughs) across the board. In fact, you've either been first or second since 2013. Well done to you, ma'am. Well done to you. It's because I make all the fun comments. Yes, there's that. And I'm really resisting the the you-know-what line, but I I Don't do it, Dan. No. (laughs) Bad Dan. And then finally, in open mic, our changes to our Patreon campaign. New for 2018, if you are a patron, after each Polycast live recording, such as for this episode, you can have a chat with us through our Discord channel with one or more of the regular co-hosts to discuss, I say anything with an asterisk, no, we will not date you, (laughs) but we will talk more about Civilization if you like, or the Polycast, and no, we will not hook you up with our hot friend either, sorry. (laughs) Sorry. If you are at the $10 or more tier, then you are going to gain access to Polycast Productions the day before anyone else. And that's less than 24 hours. I specifically didn't say 24 hours before. When I say the day before, that could technically mean the 11 o'clock hour one night and then the wee hours the morning the next day it's released. You're probably looking at more like half a day, which tying also back into our survey results, the least popular for a change was actually this one. Only at 19%, whereas the patron-only chat had a 50% support, whereas access to Polycast live stream recordings, unedited and unpolished, was very popular at 81%. So at the $25 tier or higher, able to access a patron-only post that gives you a link to an unpublished version of the live stream, which is also similar to how, how I do the access to productions that haven't been released yet. It's been uploaded to YouTube, it's currently unlisted, but then it will become publicly accessible along with being published on our website, etc., etc. But that's for any Polycast production, whereas if you want access to the live stream, and I know we had people in the past saying, give us access to the live stream, give us access to the live stream, I decided that, okay, 
yes, we'll go ahead and do that, and I'm consulting with Mackie and the main team. And for those of you familiar with Patreon, again, I want to reiterate, these tiers are per month. Uh, it is not based on the number of productions that we release. Support the ongoing Polycast Patreon campaign. Collective achievements. Personal incentives. Month-to-month commitment. For more information, visit thepolycast.net slash Patreon. Call in today. In North America, 301-637-7659. In Europe, 44-121-288-7659. The only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. Log on to the series' official website at thepolycast.net. Record date assorted. 2017 and 2018. Civilization 4, 5, Beyond Earth, and 6 clips. Copyright Take-Two Interactive. Copyright Civilized Communication at civcom.net.